in that moment I knew you have to be able to stand in this world as Kemi and you need to be able to nourish Kemi and do the best that Kemi can do and and that's where you're going to find your happiness and your fulfillment and your contentment. Welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast. I'm Katrina Blowers, and as a journalist, speaker, and mentor, I know what it's like to have confidence. I also know what it's like to have to dig really deep and find it all over again. I've interviewed hundreds of high-profile people, and this is what I know for sure. We all suffer fear, imposter syndrome, and self-doubt, no matter how shiny our life appears to be. So let's reframe the confidence conversation together and uncover the hacks and secrets to get more of it. Claiming your confidence starts now. Kemi Nekvapil is a coach, speaker and author and she's trained with Dr Brené Brown to become a Dare to Lead facilitator. Kemi landed her fifth set of foster parents at the age of just 13. She describes that experience as a gift where she learned the power of choice and she's since used that lesson to transform her life multiple times. In this beautiful conversation, Kemi talks about claiming her confidence growing up in predominantly white spaces. You'll learn how to get the courage to ask for what you want and why doing that is actually a gift to others. And Kemi shares the powerful question you should ask yourself for more confidence. Let's claim our confidence with Kemi Nekvapil. Kemi, I am so excited to have you joining me. Thank you so much for finding time to chat. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Now, you first came on my radar when I went to see Marie Folio uh, chat on stage as part of Business Chicks, which I've since discovered you and I do quite a bit of work for. Mm-hmm. Um and I have to say, I was very excited to see Marie Folio, but you blew me away even more. Oh, I'm like, oh, who is this woman? <laughs> I need to Google her immediately and find out more about her. Did we do the crazy dance when you were, did we do yeah. the jet lag dance? Yeah, of course. Of course. There you go. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited to to learn more about you and um, how you have claimed your confidence. So I guess it's an ongoing process for all of us, isn't it? Oh, it is definitely an ongoing process for all of us. I think anyone that says, I am now confident and I never have to work on my confidence ever again, there's something going on with them. <laughs> delusion. Yeah, delusion, or madness. that's the word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I always like to begin each episode just to paint a bit of a picture for our listeners. Where are you right now and what are you wearing? Oh, wow. What am I wearing? Okay, do I start from top down or bottom up? <laughs> Whatever okay. you feel comfortable so with. So I'm in Melbourne. I'm currently in stage four lockdown. In the house with me right now is my husband who is in the spare room. He's a barrister, so currently court is set up in the spare room. I have my son, Benjamin, who is 16 at the kitchen table doing year 10, and my daughter, Ella, who is 14, doing year eight in her bedroom. Um, I am wearing my Ugg boots. I'm wearing merino, beautiful merino track pants, a beautiful cotton Japanese-style shirt, and a black polo neck. 
There you oh, go. those merino tracksuit pants sound divine. They're so good. I love, I'm a real, I'm really into natural fibres. So um, yeah, I like my merino. Let's go back in time. I know you have spent a bit of time speaking about this in the past, but I think, you know, it was such a pivotal part of who you have since become. And you had a really interesting childhood where you were moved around a lot to quite a few different foster families. Mm-hmm. And you've since described that as a gift. Yeah, look, it wasn't a gift when I was in it, obviously. Um, But, yeah, so to give the listeners a bit of context, um, in the 1970s, many, many middle-class Nigerian parents believed, and this is to do with colonisation, believed that for their children to have, you know, a good stab at life was to give them an English education. So in the 1970s, many Nigerian children were fostered out to white parents in England Some of those stories didn't end well um, and to the point that there was a lot of children that ended up homeless on the streets. Um, I was very blessed in that that didn't happen to me or any of my sisters that were also fostered out. Now, when people think of foster care, they may think of having some sort of government body involved. That was not the case with these foster um, scenarios. It was basically our parents knowing other parents, Nigerian parents who had their children fostered. So it'd be, oh, well, I've got my children fostered at this place with this family. Why don't you foster your children there? And it's so interesting because I think it's so easy for us to judge other parents' choices. But I think what connects the choices that many Nigerian parents made at that time was they were doing what they thought was the best for their children. Um, My birth mother made it very clear that the reason we were having an education was so that we would return back to Nigeria and become the lawyers and the doctors. I didn't become a lawyer or a doctor. I married a lawyer. So I think she's happy with that outcome. (laughs) Um, That's kind of runner-up prize. Um, And what that did mean was that there was no there was kind of no overseer. So like I said, some of those um, some of those children that were fostered, it, it didn't end well. Um, there's actually been a beautiful film that I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't yet had the courage to watch called Farming by an English director who was in a similar situation to me, so was fostered out to white parents in the 1970s. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. I'm grateful in that my first foster parents that I was with were so loving I never, ever questioned whether I was loved. And I, you know, we all know that those first um, years around connection um, really has a very big impact in how we can connect and have relationships with others. Um, I was very lucky that I did have great connection with my first set of foster parents. Some in between were a little bit dodgy. Um, One was very devastating at the age of 13. That was when I experienced sexual abuse. It was when I experienced what it was like to be at the lowest of the lowest in a social economic um, way. You know, when you live on the worst street in the village Mm -hmm. and everyone knows that. Um, So I look back on it now as a gift because it it wasn't until I arrived at my last set of foster parents when I was 14. So I had been homeless um, for about six months prior to that. I hadn't been on the streets, but I did move from couch to couch to couch. And then my religious education teacher at school stood up in church one day and just said, we have a girl in our school. She's emotionally stable considering her situation. Is anyone willing to take her on for two weeks? And at the time, Susan and Russell Price put their hand up and 
that was 20 plus years ago now and they are who my children call grandma and grandpa oh, they wow. yeah they have come over every single year for 16 years since their grandson that they didn't know they were going to have was born because they didn't have their own children um and so that two weeks kind of extended longer than what they thought it was going to be and they won't be coming over this year because of covid unfortunately um and the gift for me is that feeling so incredibly powerless as a child in that my primary carers would change at the drop of a hat for various reasons and I had no control over that really influences the work that I do now in empowering women to, well, empowering women to own our power. And the other gift in the work that I do as a coach is that I'm, I know what it's like to be able to stand outside of a situation and observe it because I would literally be plonked into these families and I knew that my way to survive was to stand outside of the family and observe what was going on and what is my role here. If I'm going to mm. survive here, who do I have to be? What do I have to do? What can't I do? So it, it gives me a very good um, ability to be able to stand outside of a situation and look in on it. And finally, I think one thing that I see as a gift is that I have had to learn to be with my own pain and my own childhood wounds, which means I'm very, very comfortable being with the pain of others. And as a coach, I'm not always dealing with people's pain. I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. But it does mean that I can create a safe space for my clients to show up with whatever is there for them without me judging them um, because I've had to do that for myself. My goodness. And just looking at this through the lens of confidence, you would have been in a lot of white spaces where mm-hmm. you would have felt like such an outsider. How did you how did you cope with that? What did you tell yourself? Who did you have to go to for guidance? And how did you deal with any of that? Yeah, I had no one to go to for guidance. Um, I would spend some time with my birth mother when she would come over from Nigeria and we would spend time together. So I suppose she was my mirror. But in some ways, I also didn't feel that I belonged like in that space of kind of I would spend time with my Nigerian aunties, but I was being raised in a very white world. So there was a disconnect in the white world. I was being told you're black, but you're a good one. And then in the black world, it was so fleeting with my, I felt I felt like I had a sense of belonging to my mum and to my sisters, but their, what they wanted from me, I couldn't give them because I wasn't being raised in that way. Um, the thing that made the biggest difference for me was I was at school. I was always the only black girl at school. And I remember one day changing um, after a physical education class and I was kind of looking behind me at the mirror, seeing all of my white friends and they all had boyfriends, which was very, very important when you're 16 at school. And I didn't. And they all had different bodies than me and different hair from me and they had boyfriends. And I just remember looking in the mirror and I feel like I had this this um, what a lot of people sort of called a divine download and I literally saw it come in from sort of the right side of me so it came from outside of me and the voice said if you continue to compare yourself to everyone that you're surrounded by you will never be happy oh my goodness and I just managed it it was amazing Katrina I feel like it was one of the biggest gifts I've ever been given because in that moment I knew that was true and in that moment I knew you have to be able to stand in this world as Kemi and you need to be able to nourish Kemi 
and do the best that Kemi can do and and that's where you're going to find your happiness and your fulfillment and your contentment. Kemi, that story just gave me goosebumps. I have no idea where that came from, that inner strength and inner belief that you must have had to have, especially at such a young age. Is that something that you now talk to your children about? Um, it's funny, I, I share with my daughter today that I was doing this interview and it was around confidence. Um, and I was saying that I was going to share this story. And because she is also at a school um, where she is one of seven children in 1,500 children, she's one of seven children of colour. And so we have this conversation often. Both my husband, my husband is Caucasian. We have, from the moment they were born, chose that we want to raise them as who they are until racism hits. Not when, not if, but until it does. So at least they have a grounding that their value comes from who they are. And I have to say at the moment, as a 14-year-old girl and a 16-year-old son, they do have a very strong sense of who they are. But like me, they are navigating mainly white spaces. So it's, uh, you know, it's as, as, you know, has come to the fore for a lot of people that aren't navigating the world in black skin is that we have to have conversations that other parents don't have to have with their children. You know, I remember when my son first put on a hoodie, I remember thinking, now I feel scared. And I remember thinking, I want to have a conversation with him, but I don't want him to think that that how he looks could have a really big impact in how he gets to live in the world as a young black man. And yet as a black mum, if I don't have this conversation with him, I'm actually not doing my job. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, and, and that in some ways that, that me having that conversation with him gives him context. And his response to me was like, mum, I get it, but I am not going to allow these things to stop me from living. Um, and I said, darling, that's absolutely great. Like, I'm so proud of you. I just want you to know that if these things happen to you, it's not about you. It's about a system, but it's not about you. And that, and that is true confidence too, being able to sit with that and know that you are more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And the confidence also comes from knowing that it's also true. It, you know, it's a very fine line. Um, and, and that's what you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, that confidence is something that we have to build because we it can be knocked out of us by different people in different spaces, different comments at different times. I'm not just talking about race here. I'm just talking about generally. Um, and so confidence isn't something that it's a one and done. Now I've got it. It'll be here forever. We, we are delusional if we think that. I think what we get to have is to realize where we can stand in our confidence and then where our confidence gets knocked and the tools that we can have in our tool belt to kind of build that confidence up. Now, you've said that it wasn't until you were a teenager yourself that you realised you had a choice about how you wanted to live your life. Yes. And one of your foster mothers gave you that gift and you chose, well, speaking of confidence, you chose one of the careers that a lot of people find terrifying and that's standing up on stage as an actress. And you also chose food. So you trained to be a baker, I believe. Is that right? And then you yes. also, you were successful at 
at both baking and acting, which is incredible. Yeah, it was a very interesting thing. So I arrived with my last set of foster parents at 13 and my foster mum at the time was a careers teacher. And she said to me one day, you know, what do you want to do? And because I'd arrived with them, I suddenly had a situation where I felt like, wow, now I'm actually being given choice around what I want to do in my life. And that had not been my experience up until that point. And at the time when a lot of teenagers were kind of exploring the world, I was exploring safety. You know, what does it feel like to now feel safe and secure? And one thing I found made me feel safe was baking. And I think a lot of people can attest the amount of people that are finding, you know, their mastery in sourdough during the pandemic, (laughs) I think would attest to how we find safety in baking. Um, And so at a lot of time, a lot of teenagers were going out, I was actually saying to my foster mum, let's bake this weekend, what can we bake? What can we bake? And I loved it. And I decided that I um, would would study baking. But I had originally said to her that I wanted to either go into fashion, my birth father was a very well known Nigerian textile designer. So that was kind of a pull. And also acting was a pull. And my foster mum, Sue said to me, look, acting and fashion can be, you know, not necessarily very steady careers. So how about you learn a trade first? And so I decided, okay, I'll learn how to bake bread. That means I will always have a job, regardless. Um, And then I decided to study acting after that. And to be honest, with acting, I loved acting. And I thought that I would very much be acting in a kind of community space in a kind of activism role, sharing about things that meant a lot to me at the time. And it took a completely different path. I ended up on television in a very prominent soap in London for three and a half years. Was that called London Bridge? It was, was that called that one? London yeah. Bridge, yeah. And it was groundbreaking at that time because on TV at the time in London, the only roles for black actors were, I mean, and look, and this is testament to what we've already spoken about, were basically criminals. <laughs> like that was it. We had the bill and you're a criminal or you're a nurse in casualty Um, or you may get a role as a drug addict in some role. So this show, London Bridge, had a very, very diverse cast, and it was a cast that actually represented, you know, mainstream London. Um, So it was very, very well loved from the moment it went to air. And I I have some of my dearest friends I met on that show because, as you would know, you you get up at 6 a.m., you're in the makeup chair together, you're in each other's lives for... 12 hours a day and they become your family Um, and I went from that show then to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company for two years in Stratford-upon-Avon the home of Shakespeare I I love Shakespeare and went from there to them working with the National Theatre yeah it was it was incredible I had really great opportunities I got to work with wonderful people but there was something missing and I, I, I felt like I have this career, I have, I'm living this life that looks great to everyone on the outside. And it was great. I just knew that I didn't want to play other people for the rest of my life. Wow. And again, was this something that started as a niggle and then became a roar? How did this um, speak to you? Yeah, good question. It, I remember I, and I actually write about this in my book, Raw Beauty. I had a conversation with a fellow actress. So we were in New York with the Raw Shakespeare Company playing in Brooklyn. And actually, I remember the first one was a very dear friend of mine. We were actually at an event and the CEO of the Brooklyn Academy of Arts was talking at a massive event and we were all there and it was a big deal. And I was talking to my friend and I was eating um, some food and I sort of prodded her on the shoulder. I said, what's in this? 
She's like, shush, you know, he's talking. And I was like, no, no, no. I said, I think it's chervil or it's dill. What have they put in this mayonnaise? And she was an actor. She was like, can you shut up? Like everyone's listening to the man. Who cares about the herb? And that was maybe my first igling, my, you know, that of, hmm, I'm more interested in the herb in the mayonnaise than I am in what this person is talking about. And then a few weeks later, I think maybe it was, maybe it's even a few days later, I spoke to a fellow actor and she was talking about how her life's mission, her aspiration was to play Lady Macbeth. And I got that because that is one of the key roles for a woman in Shakespeare. But I also got that that's not what I wanted. And I thought, mm. if that's the pinnacle, mm, like if that's what I'm to aspire to, I don't think that's why I'm here. And walking away from a job like that, which so many other people aspire to get, and, you know, it's it's the pinnacle really. You were very successful and you were then subsequently offered a huge TV role mm-hmm. where you were able to write and direct as well and it would have just catapulted you. You were already pretty well known, but you, it would have catapulted you into another stratosphere. And it's like that whole thing of what you think you should do mm. as opposed to what you really want to do in your heart. And I had a similar thing when I was in Sydney and I was working for a breakfast radio show and we were the number one FM breakfast radio show at a time when, you know, people were still getting paid a lot of money. Breakfast radio was still kind of at its height and we were on billboards all over town. And I quit that job right at its peak and I had everybody saying to me, you're making the biggest mistake of your life, the biggest mistake of your career. And it took such guts and inner inner confidence really to be true to myself and walk away what was it for you that gave you that power to stand up in the midst of everyone telling you you're probably being crazy it's interesting isn't it that that you name it as confidence I think maybe now I could look back on it I think I was just really unhappy and it just got to the point from the moment that I knew I need to leave acting It was 18 months before I actually did because similar to you, I had people saying, what are you doing? This is everyone's dream. You're earning so much money. I mean, I was earning more money than both of my parents put together. Like it was, it was a lot of money and it kind of shows what our culture, and I understand as well. It's interesting. I think it's only once you're in the industry, you actually understand why we get paid the money that we get paid because it takes a lot and it, you have to be very, very committed and, For me, I just remember being in an audition and I remember the casting director saying to me, you know, what have you been doing for your summer? I remember thinking, you don't care (laughs) what I've been doing for my summer and actually I really don't want to tell you. I'd rather be doing it. And at that time, I just bought my first flat in London. I was 22 years old and I remember thinking I would rather be in my home than speaking to these strangers trying to somehow convince you that I am the person that – Actually, it was more of a point of, I don't want you to tell me whether or not I can pay my rent. Mm. You know, it's one of the reasons I'm an entrepreneur. (laughs) I get to decide whether or not I get to pay my mortgage. Um, And again, it's the power of choice, isn't it? Which goes back to your childhood. It's it's a really strong value for you. Yeah. And I think for me, I, I just got really unhappy. I thought I'm living this life that other people want me to live. And I don't know what's on the other side of this. I just know right now that I love food. So I'm going to leave this career and I'm going to go back into food because I know that that fills me with so much joy and I'll take it from there. That was all I knew. So you met a man in a pub and he invited you to Thailand to cook. Isn't that the way it always works? Yes. 
(laughs) (laughs) I met a man in a pub and I think this is the power of sharing with people that we love what's important to us. So I had a very good friend who was a photographer and she said, so what do you want to do? You're leaving acting for what? I said, at this point, I had a very strong yoga practice that I'd started when I was in um, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I said, I just kind of want to teach yoga and chef and travel the world. That's what I want to do. And about a week later, she rang me up and said, I've just met a man who's opened a resort in Thailand and he's looking for a chef. And it's a particular resort that will have certain celebrities there. He can't find the right chef. I think you should meet him in the pub tonight. And I love this friend and trusted this friend. And I said, okay, I'll meet him in the pub. And I met him. He said, there's no money. So this is interesting. I'd gone from a very well-paying job. And he said, there's no money. I can promise you board and I can promise you food come and be the head chef in Thailand, teach the Thai chefs how to cook European food to a high standard. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I'll do that. And I'm so glad I said yes, because six weeks into that, yes, I met my husband. Didn't you seduce him through spaghetti bolognese? Yeah. (laughs) You have done your research. It's so funny. Not intentionally. So it's interesting. I had a very self-righteous opinion in the Thai kitchen wondering why do people come to a foreign country and order food from their home? But that was my role in this resort was to be able to cook kind of food that people recognised. And an order came in for spaghetti bolognese. I was like, why would someone come to Thailand and order spaghetti bolognese? My um, now husband did. And he said it was the best spaghetti bolognese he'd ever had, better than his mum's, which for him was like, what is going on? And he said, I really want to meet the chef. And I came out and I did not look like the chef he thought was going to come out of that room. And he said, the moment I saw you, I knew. Um, and, yeah. And then we, we actually just hung out platonically for a couple of days. Like we were just friends. We had really good fun. He went back to Amsterdam. He was doing, finishing his law degree in Amsterdam. I went back to London to finish my chefing. And then we kind of started dating around Europe because that's what we could do in those days. Um, one of us would jump on a plane and we'd meet in Greece or we'd meet in Paris or, um, and yeah, that was how our romance began. Bill sounds terribly romantic. Now, he also introduced you to raw food. Is that right? Yeah, he introduced me to a book which introduced me to raw food. Um, The book was called The Tao of Health, Sexuality and Longevity by a man called Daniel Reed. And it just started making sense to me around adding more life to your life makes a difference. And, and it wasn't asking you to cut anything out. It was just like add more raw food to your life. And I thought, yeah, that sounds easy. I can do that. Um, and that took me then on another journey that my husband also joined me on for a little bit. But that started my business, Kemi's Raw Kitchen, because I started realizing people don't know the power of eating fruits and vegetables, not just from a point of, you know, dress size or anything like that, but from an energy point of view um, that we have this incredible food on the planet that actually can sustain us to do really wonderful things so that really sparked me and I started my business Chemist Raw Kitchen from that place. And what I love is that that then led you to a platform which I think was probably what you were always meant to be doing of women's empowerment through food and you said you had a bit of an epiphany where you thought what if beauty is what we create not what we're told Mm. it should be. Talk us through that and the kinds of changes you were able to make and um, the kinds of things that you were able to teach women. 
It came from me running raw food classes from my home here in Melbourne and I would state all the way through my classes, this is not about dress size, this is not about weight, this is about fueling your body so you can do the things you want to do in life. And even though I would say that I would have women come up to me after every class, yes, but how many calories does celery have compared to cucumber or some version of that. And I found it funny at the beginning, but then I started, then I, it started upsetting me actually because then I started thinking, wow are we really here to only fit into a particular dress size? Is that our only aspiration in life? At that point, I had read Naomi Wolf's book um, around beauty and what is beauty and how this idea of the beauty system that's been put in place really has women play very small. And I just thought, here I am as a black woman with a shaved head who does not tick any of the kind of general Um, even in Nigeria, funnily enough, which is my heritage country, to have a shaved head is kind of like not a beautiful thing to do. Um, So I'm kind of an anomaly in, in different spaces. So I just thought, okay, so I have always had to create a beauty that's come from the inside. And I want to share with women that that's the beauty that we get to own. That's the beauty that no billboard can take away from us. And that was where Raw Beauty came from. So Kemi's Raw Kitchen evolved into Raw Beauty and the Raw Beauty Queen. And that's when I started running retreats here in Australia and in Bali and creating a space for women to show up um, as who we are with our strengths, with our weaknesses, and that the beauty that we nourish for ourselves is the beauty that the world actually needs, not a beauty that's forced on us where we constantly feel not enough and not worthy because we don't get to shine when we don't feel that we're worthy of being in a place. Before we continue with this incredible conversation, I wanted to let you know that for the month of September, I'm taking 20% off my Becoming a Confident Communicator online course. This is seven video masterclasses plus workbooks you can keep forever. They're made just for time poor people. And I'm with you every step of the way teaching you the exact techniques I use on TV and when I speak in public. It'll show you how to tell and sell your story with more poise and polish, whether you're on stage, on screen, or even on your socials. Head to katrinablowers.com and use the code SEPTEMBER20. That code again, SEPTEMBER20. You use that code at checkout for 20% off for September 2020 only. Okay, let's get back to the show. Was it then a natural stepping stone to becoming a life coach? It was. Actually, I don't know if I've shared this story very much, but I ran my first retreat in a beautiful place here in the Yarra Valley. And I remember running my first retreat, driving home, pulling over into a lean-to and crying because I realised this is it. Like, this is why I'm here. It's to hold space. It was, I just, actually, even now it makes me feel emotional because I just suddenly realized that everything I had been through, everything that I had experienced, everything that I had created for myself was for that moment to realize this is why you are on the planet. And I know that not everyone gets to have that feeling, but I knew it and I felt it very, very strongly. And I, just needed to take that space, you know, at the side of the road. I don't know what anyone would have thought if they'd driven past, but um, 
it was a very, very powerful moment for me. And I kind of made a pact with the universe of this is my life's work. I will honour this work and I don't take it for granted. And I feel it's a privilege for me to do the work that I do and to work with the women that I do, whether it's in my one-to-one coaching practice, whether it's through my books, whether it's when I'm speaking on stage, I do not take for granted the power that we have as women when we are allowed to show up and then when we support each other to show up. Isn't it funny that looking back at your life now and joining up all the dots, I love, you know, what somebody said once, and I can't remember who it was, that that life is like a series of breadcrumbs and you just have to keep following the breadcrumbs. And <laughs> so for you, you know, you've, you've got this career with food and then you dipped out of that and went into acting and then the, the food thing led to empowering women and then the acting is kind of enabled you to do what you do now, which is stand up on stage or stand in front of workshops, um, speaking to you know thousands of, of men and women. And perhaps if you hadn't done the acting, you wouldn't have had those skills to stand on stage confidently. You might have had real stage fright. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I definitely knew, and I think we've all been to presentations and seen speakers speak where we are spoken at. And I feel that one of the gifts that acting has given me is that I am not afraid to have fun on stage. Um, I'm not afraid. My main reason to be on stage is to connect with the people in front of me. And I trust that. And the reason I can trust that is because I spend a lot of time on my own connecting with myself. I really believe that we cannot give what we don't have. And so I can stand on stage. I love to joke um, on stage. I have quite a dry English sense of humour um, and my my aim to be there is to connect with the people on in the audience so that they can connect with themselves. Um, I never want to be a speaker that stands on stage and tells people what to do with their lives. How could I possibly do that? I have no idea what people are living. What I can do is create a space for people to take the time and space to tap into what in their life is working, what isn't working, what they care about, what they don't care about, what they want to build and what they want to let go of. And 100% acting has given me the ability to be able to be on stage confidently. But it's not about me. It, it, I'm not on stage. It's not about me. It's about me being be able to create a space for other people to show up. And funnily enough, you know, what we give is what we get back. So in me being on stage, I also get to show up. It's a it's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful relationship between me and the audience and also my coaching clients. I gain as much from my clients as I hope that they gain from the space that I create for them. Yeah, yeah. I would love to talk to you now because you've written two books. Um, we've we've kind of touched on one, but the the other one that I'd love to learn a little bit more about is the gift of asking. And you said you wrote it because women asking for what they want and need matters, and there's hardly anything written about it. Um, I'd love to know why do you think women, some women, many women, I think, mm-hmm. don't have the confidence to ask for what they want. Yeah, look, it's, it, it came from me. The book came from me working with my clients and speaking to audiences and, yeah, just that women would get stuck when it came. They might have clarity on what they want, but then asking for what they want was where they got stuck. So there are many reasons why we don't ask. I think from a socialisation point of view, and there are all these overlays that we have, we have cultural overlays, we have familial overlays, and we have societal overlays. And one of them is is that most women 
are raised to be constantly available to others. So that means that our needs are never at the forefront. It means that our worth is measured by how much we do for others at the expense of ourselves. Now, I believe that being of service is great. I think if you can be a human on the planet where what you do is to better humankind in some way, whatever that is, whether that's art, whether it's policy, whatever that is, we need to be able to ask for what we want so that we can do that work in a sustainable way so that we can do what we do, not because our worth comes from that, but be, but because we have the inner resources that our needs are being met so that we can do what we want to do. And a lot of women, many women, not all, but many women give and give and give and give and give and give at the expense of themselves. And they're left with resentment and anger and overwhelm and a lack of fulfillment. You actually gave an example which which really resonated actually. It was look, it was probably a minor thing, but I think it's indicative of of a bigger picture where you spoke about a lady who'd gone to get a massage and it was a big deal for her because she'd been quite stressed out and she was really looking forward to this massage. And the therapist said to her, Oh, just let me know if the music's too loud or if the room's too cold or if I talk too much or whatever. And of course, all of those things were going on and, and the lady didn't say anything. She didn't ask for what she wanted. So she didn't enjoy the the experience. And this is something that made me think because I never thought about it from this perspective before. You also wrote that the therapist didn't get what she wanted either because she also wanted to provide a good experience. So by not asking, you're not only robbing yourself, but you're robbing other people. Absolutely. And I think this is what's a really interesting thing as well about women supporting each other and empowering each other is that When we ask someone else to share their skill, their insight, their information, their experience with us, we actually elevate them, that there's actually an opportunity to say, you are really good at that thing and I need your help and support. What many of us think, though, is if we ask for help and support somehow, that means that we're weak or that we're being a burden. And within coaching, one of the things that my coach taught me, which I share often with my clients, is that we do other people's thinking for them too often. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to try and guess what somebody else thinks about our ask. It's so much more, um, it's going to be, give you so much more to actually ask them and then allow them to give, them, give you the answer and then you can work from there. We also fear asking because we're scared of getting a no. And I always just say, we've all got no's before. You know, most of us have survived more than one no in our life. And it's more empowering to have the no and then work out what the next step is than to live in this constant state of limbo and trying to do other people's thinking for them. Oh, I love it. What what advice would you have for any woman listening right now who needs a bit more confidence to ask for what they want? Um. The first thing I would say is to, you know, really ask yourself the question is what's my relationship to asking? You know, my, my job as a coach is, is not to give advice. My job is to ask questions. I think that would be the question because a lot of women get their answers from that. What is my relationship to asking? Some women have said to me, they've read the book and they've been like, I had no idea that I didn't ask until I read that book. Or I had no idea that most of my unhappiness or most of my overwhelm is, is because I'm not willing to ask because I believe that asking is a weakness. Um, I've had no idea that I have judged others for asking 
because I have felt asking is a weakness and therefore I've judged them. You know, it's, we can ask ourselves these questions. And I think what's really important, Katrina, is, and I've heard this, you know, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and, and they're really great. And a theme that I've heard is we need to take the time out to ask ourselves these questions because we will actually find our own answers. Yeah, it's mostly within us already, isn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's creating the space to have, you know, it's creating the space to find those answers. And sometimes we don't know the questions to ask. And that can be my role as a coach is asking the questions that allow that deeper reflection and to, to connect the dots for us around our relationships Um whether it's a relationship to asking, whether it's a relationship to a team member, whether it's a relationship to an intimate partner, that it's the, the gift is taking the time. And then if you have the right questions, it's amazing what we can move forwards with and what we can reveal about ourselves. Now, on top of everything else that you've achieved in your incredible career, you're also a certified Dare to Lead facilitator. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's the Courage Building Program based on the research of Dr. Brene Brown. How did you get into this? It's amazing. I'm not sure a lot of your listeners know the work of Brene Brown. So I read the book Dare to Lead. I actually took it. I run, um, I'm a lead facilitator for The Hunger Project, which is an incredible organization that once again works on this idea of empowering and coaching. Um, that Just as says, a side note, I, I have to interrupt you because I um, didn't realize that until I started researching you. But right now I'm reading that book, The Soul of Money by Lynn oh, Twist. Oh my gosh. I know. Talk about oh, synchronicity. There you go. That is one of the best, best books about money. Um, oh, I'm not going to do a spoiler. I'm not going to do a spoiler. <laughs> I know I've got a feeling. All I'm going to say to you is when she's in the lift. That's all I'm going to say to you about oh, that. Oh, okay. So when anyone listening, lift. Lynn Twist was the chief fundraising officer for The Hunger Project. And isn't it funny, just the coincidence mm-hmm. of that? Mm, anyway. Absolutely. And I'm not a person that believes in coincidences. So that's the universe doing its doing its magic, doing its thing. But yes, mm. The Hunger Project very much believes that the hungry can get themselves out of hunger, that they have the same intelligence and internal resources as everyone else on the planet. There are just some external resources they don't have. So my role, I go with maybe up to 20 Australian business owners and we look at what leadership looks like in a village um, and how does a, a woman on the ground or even a man on the ground take his, you know, maybe his children that aren't in school to school? What, what is the vision that he has? What is the commitment that she has? And what are the actions that need to be taken to live out this vision that they have? So I was reading Dare to Lead when I was last in Uganda with um, Australian business women for this particular trip. And it was so powerful for me as a leader. And it was so powerful that I was reading from that book every single day in regards to what I was facilitating for that group at the time. When I returned home, I bought the book for my co-facilitators and my team. And then once again, I had a bit of a divine download. On a weekend, I don't do emails on the weekend. And it said, go and check the Dare to Lead website, see what's there. And it said there was a facilitator training in Texas with Brene Brown. And, oh, wow. and I was like, okay, so this was worth breaking my boundaries around no emails at the weekend. I had two days to apply and I had to, you had to tick one box out of three criteria. And I was lucky that I ticked two in regards to leadership and women and also organizational change and leadership and coaching. So I applied and then I got really scared because this is the confidence thing. So then I went into 
there are thousands of people around the globe that are going to want this facilitator training. They're only taking 600 people from around the world for this year. Um, there are going to be people that have more experience than you. There are going to be people that have this. There are going to be people that know this. There are going to be people that this don't apply. So I then put it down for a day and the clock was ticking because I only had two days to apply. And I suddenly realized, okay, what would Brene say? She'd say, get in the arena. Like yeah. you have to get in the arena. If you don't apply, you're not going to know whether you get in. So I did apply and um, it was a very rigorous process. We had to read every single one of her books and do an assessment for every single one of her books and pass the assessments. And then we would have to wait and hear whether we got in. And because of the time zone difference, I had thought that I hadn't got in. And then another 24 hours ticked over and I was screaming, jumping up and down in my bed. And my daughter ran in and said, what is it? And I said, I got in, I got in, I'm going to Texas. <laughs> and she jumped on the bed with me. She said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but let's just jump on the bed anyway. Um, so I did the training. Look, I have to say it is one of the most powerful trainings I have ever done, which makes sense because Brene has taken 20 years to put this training together. I have done this work with teams and organizations and it has been a game changer. Like in some ways I feel I could just give the work, but you can't give the work, but I kind of wanted to be able to say, here it is and do it to stand in the room and see the transformations that teams and individuals go through around what brave leadership looks like and how shame plays a big part in organizations and how courage and vulnerability is what is needed for leadership in the 21st century and allowing humans to lead not this kind of concept outside of ourselves that if I was more like this or more like that I would be a better leader but to actually stand in no as a leader I'm enough and there are skill sets that I can learn that will empower my leadership to be of service in a bigger more expansive more humane way. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you on a whole other podcast episode just about this. Oh, it's I have amazing. to ask, how, how is Brene Brown in real life? Oh, she's horrible. She's the most horrible. <laughs> <laughs> she is, look, it, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? So she is the epitome of what she talks about. She is brave. She is courageous. She says it. She does not suffer fools gladly. I love that about her. She holds her work and her life's purpose to a very high standard. And she expects us as facilitators to do the same. We actually had a webinar, you know, for us facilitators just the other day because she is constantly and her team are constantly updating the program. And we are constantly feeding back to her what works in organizations, what isn't working in, in the facilitation. She said to us, you are the cohort. You are the people that I have trusted to go out into the world with this work. And I need to hear from you what works and what doesn't work. And we are working together. She's an incredible leader. Um, within the first five minutes of being in the room, she actually looked around the room and said, this is a very white room. And I'm into interiors, Katrina. And I actually thought, yes, yes, this hotel paint is quite white. It's not really on the warm <laughs> side. And then I realized, oh, my gosh. She's talking about race. Now, I had never, ever been in a room where the majority was white and the person on the stage was white and they were willing to call out what was happening in front of them. Mm. And she said, as an organisation, we know what is going on. We know what we need to do. This is long before, you know, George Floyd, any of what has just recently happened. Um, and 
she said, and I just want everyone in this room that feels that they're in the minority, that you have a voice, that we want to hear your stories and we want your experiences. And this is a safe space for you to do that. And she said, I know that everyone in this room, everyone of colour knows how many people of colour are in this room. And I was at the front and I just put my hand and said, yep, there are seven of us, six women, one man. And she goes, exactly. And she said, and I invite you all to speak. And what was really interesting in her courageous, brave, as she calls awkward leadership, was that through the training, we then had people go, hi, I'm a gay woman. Um, I'm married, something, something. It had no relevance to what the woman was then about to say. But suddenly wow. Renee had created a space where people in the minority could say, this is who I am as a human. And I want to be able to share that because it gives context to why I'm sharing what I'm sharing or who I am. And then you'd have someone say, I'm a veteran. I'm ex-military. I've suffered from severe PTSD. And I am here because I'm working within the veterans community. And it allowed everyone to show up as leaders that are human, that have their own struggles, and that also want to empower other leaders in a human way in the world. Oh, I didn't think it was possible, but this has made me love her even more. And, con- <laughs> oh, and congratulations. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful work and it's such a beautiful and empowering, exciting community to be a part of. And I think what's interesting about this time now with the pandemic is that organisations are looking for a different form of leadership, like courage is needed in a way it's never been needed before. Vulnerability is needed in a way it's never been needed before. I have been having conversations with CEOs in the last few weeks and these CEOs are so vulnerable with their team in being able to say, yes, I've had a really tough couple of days. I need to look after my mental health. I've been looking after my team. I haven't been looking after myself. This is what I've been putting in place. What have you been putting in place? It doesn't make the team think, oh, my leader hasn't got it all together. They need to be the the oracle that knows it all. It has the team members going, oh, that, that them as well. Oh, hmm. so I can say that I'm struggling because my children are at home and they're not sleeping and one of them's sick. Oh, I feel safe to say I'm good at my work and I have struggles that I have to manage. I'm good at my work and I have obstacles that I have to meet. So it's very exciting. It, 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 I think the future of work is incredibly exciting if organizations and leaders are willing to be courageous right now. We've covered so much amazing ground here, so much more actually than I thought we were going to, which has been such a gift. Thank you. Normally I, in in the first of these rapid fire questions, I would ask what your number one confidence tip is, but you said you didn't love giving advice. So what would be then a great question that somebody who's perhaps struggling with confidence could ask themselves? Mm. How much am I comparing myself to others? Yes, a lot of self, self-worth self issues stems right from yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something in knowing. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this phrase and then I'm going to sort of give a little bit more a, a caveat around that. So the phrase of stay in your own lane, I don't mean that as an oppressive way because that can be meant as that kind of, you know, stay in your own lane, don't rock the boat. That's not what I mean. What I mean is whoever we are as individuals is enough. We were worthy from the moment that we were born. And the work that we get to do, the most important work we get to do is peel back all the layers that tell us that we're not. And then when we can stand in that worthiness, which is a, which is the ultimate confidence, which is I am worthy to be here with everything that I bring. And then all I can do is be the best version of me 
all I can do is better myself and not be looking at what anyone else is doing in a way that makes me feel less than. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Is there a book that you've read or would recommend or an inspirational quote that's really inspired you or helped you on your way in your confidence journey? I am a big book reader. It is one of my big joys. I would say um, there's many books, but I would say one that has really touched me recently is Hunger by Roxane Gay. So she is an African-American woman, an academic, a very, very well-regarded writer, and she is a woman that is navigating the world in a, in a large body. And her vulnerable, courageous, brave writing is spellbinding. And what inspires me about that in terms of confidence is that she is someone that is in front of audiences all the time, is a very, very well-known feminist and activist and has shared her most darkest, vulnerable thoughts and feelings and experiences. And in her doing that, I had high regard for her anyway, but my goodness, it's an incredible book. So Hunger, I would say another one um, for me that inspires me in regards to confidence as a creative is all of Stephen Pressfield's books. Um, so Turning Pro, Do the Work and um, The Work of a Pro. And that is because he just talks about the creative process is tough and resistance will show up all the time. And I always dip into his books whenever I'm creating something new because I know that part of the process is kind of who am I to do this? What's the point? Is anyone going to read this? You know, why bother? <laughs> and yeah. his book always just um, reminds me, yes, the work is important. And probably the third one, because um, she has become a good friend now, is Liz Gilbert's Big Magic book, once again, oh, as a creative, a book that I yes. get in and out of. Yes, I love that book too. Yeah. And we'll put links to all of those books that you've mentioned in the okay, show wonderful, notes. Wonderful. I would love to know what do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome attached? Uh, I'll be honest, I'm a bit of a joy seeker, creator. I have a lot of things that bring me joy. That could be podcast number three. Tina. So <laughs> um, I am an endurance runner. I love running long distances through the forests for no reason. I talk to trees and hug them often. I am an avid organic gardener. I love to craft. Um, I like to do, um, I'm obsessed with stationery. Pens make me really happy. Um, so to Liz any Gilbert journals, is too, isn't she? Yeah, and that was yeah. when, when I interviewed her on our first interview, that was how we connected. We went out buying pens and pencils and stationery and stickers together. Um, always a very good way to bond with someone. Um, I love pottering. That is one of my ultimate joys. I just love pottering around my home and garden with no outcome and just, you know, just fiddling with bits and moving a pot here and a something there and a book over there um, and reading is a joy. See, I told you there's lots of things. I could even give you 10 more. But, yeah, I, joy is important. Joy is incredibly important. But you do have to work to cultivate it, don't you? You do have to be really mindful and, um, you know, as, as Felicity Harley said in an, an earlier episode, you almost have to name the emotion when you're feeling it in order to find it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I did when we, when COVID, when we sort of all got how, how serious um, the pandemic was, was I started something on my Instagram called Delight Diaries, the Delight Diaries. Because I thought it was really important when people were struggling that even in struggle, we can have moments of delight. 
And there is cultivation. I also think another thing is being mindful. And what was really beautiful when people would share with me and I would repost and share and we have sort of had this thing going is that the moments of delight are really fleeting and they're really small. It's being able to see two birds make a nest. It's baking cookies with my children while dancing. It's having a book that I could read. Someone said um, having two children under the age of five and reading a whole chapter of a book and not the same <laughs> sentence again and again and again, which those of the children can relate with. That it's, it is, it's cultivating it. It is knowing that we deserve it. You know, Brene talks about the most vulnerable emotion we feel is joy. That that mm-hmm. is the most vulnerable emotion is joy. And to live a well-rounded life, it is important that we take notice of those moments of joy and delight and also important that we know that we deserve joy and delight. I would love to know what you are working on right now in your own confidence journey that will take you to where you next want to be in your life. Well, I'm writing my third book and um, it still has a working title, so I, I can't share any of that right now. But I am sharing in that stories that I have never shared before because it's around me Um, and my experiences and sharing those in the hope that it will allow other women to live and lead without apology. I know that when we share stories with each other, that is sometimes where we get what we need. It's not a book where I'm telling people how to live their lives. I'm sharing where I have gone wrong, what I have done correctly. And then there are coaching processes within that, because once again, I want my story to create the safe space. And then there are questions that can be answered for women to look at what are areas in my life where I have given myself over? Um, what are the areas in my life when I haven't owned my worth? What are the areas when I have? What has been the impact of both of those? What have I learned along the way? So I know that in me sharing these stories, that will lead me to whatever the next chapter is in my life. I have no idea what it's going to be because I don't know who I'm going to be tomorrow, let alone, you know, <laughs> you know, I think that's one thing about personal growth and being on this journey is that we, as human beings, we need to be growing and growth is uncomfortable and it should be. And yet there is no better way to live than to constantly be revealing yourself to yourself so that you can share that with others in a way that makes a meaningful difference. Absolutely. And I feel that as a former baker, the analogy of following the breadcrumbs in life is absolutely (laughs) perfect for you. (laughs) And I'd have to add to that as well. Another thing that's really important when it comes to joy is eat a lot of cake. There you go. Oh, gosh, I've loved our chat today. And I'm so, so grateful to you for finding the time and sharing all of your amazing insights about your life and, and how you've got to where you are today. So thank you so much again. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation too, Katrina. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turner. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.